Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. The California Endowment, working to achieve health and justice for all. Learn more at calendow.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, a California city undergoing dramatic changes. Oakland, a new comedy compares people edged out of the city to polar bears on shrinking glaciers. Feels like the local climate is changing and the native species, the native communities are getting pushed out almost to the point of extinction. Plus a Chicano artist's fiery vision of Los Angeles. Naked people cavorting in the streets, freeways zooming and zigzagging all over the place, and the skyscrapers are wagging like puppy dog tails. And we check back in with one of California's first undocumented PhDs. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. In many California cities, homelessness has reached a boiling point. There's not enough housing or space. And tent encampments are cropping up in neighborhoods where they're not always welcome. That's happening big time in Oakland, where complaints about homelessness have increased more than 700 percent over the last six years. KQED's Devin Kadiyama has been spending time with neighbors who have totally different perspectives on the issue. Oh my God, he pried it off again. Hillary Nevis walks out on our front porch and points to a small thing that represents a big deal. So yeah, so I did this really passive aggressive thing. I came home and somebody had just left all their electronics plugged in in the front of my house. And so we have these child proof locks that are really hard to get out, but he kept prying them off. And so I just came out with super glue and I was like, whatever, we don't need these outlets. And he got it off. So there you go. Somebody's still charging their stuff in, our, in the front of our house. Since Nevis bought her home and moved in last fall, people have been coming onto her property to use her outlets. Her neighbors, the ones with homes, 
send emails to each other, and share stories, like the one about a person who tried to hook up a washing machine and a shopping cart to water. That's an endeavor, trying to, like, figure out how to, like, hook up a washing machine that doesn't have power either. Are they going to, like, steal power hookups also? Like, it's just so crazy. It speaks volumes to the desperate situations that more and more people in Oakland live with. The homeless population grew 25% over the last two years. It's a crisis which can't be ignored in some neighborhoods where complaints are stacking up. Oakland tracks these complaints through a website called C-Click Fix, which ranks users. And you don't have to go too far to find Hillary Nevis. <laughs> I'm not that high up. She's pretty high up. Most of Nevis's complaints are about the homeless encampment a few steps from her house on 29th Street. When Nevis bought her home last year, there was just a single person living under the freeway. He lived under a couch that was flipped upside down. It was a really small footprint. He didn't bother anyone. He, you know, very much felt like my neighbor. In less than a year, the encampment has grown to about a dozen tents. It's a familiar sight in a number of Oakland neighborhoods. And it's testing people's patience with the city. My main argument in my own head is just that I didn't sign up for this when I moved in here. None of this was here. Nevis says she's tried to be a good neighbor as homelessness has become more visible around Oakland. For a while, when she would come home and there'd be people sitting on her porch using her outlets to charge electronics, she didn't say anything. They'd just say hello to you and they'd chill there. And I never called the cops on any of those people while they were doing that. But, um... But there was an incident that changed everything for Nevis. In the middle of the night, someone pounded on her door demanding their cell phone back. Someone had apparently stolen it. Nevis can't say for sure the person at her door was someone from the encampment, but the incident changed the way she viewed her unsheltered neighbors. When we were letting everyone charge their stuff back there and we were like, oh, hey, we can like be a community, like work together. And then one of those people tried to break into my house. I'm like, no, like we're not in this together. Like we were trying to help you guys out. We were trying to like treat you with respect and like allow you onto our property to do this, and all you did was take advantage. This was the breaking point for Nevis. Since then, she's called the cops a bunch of times for people trespassing. She says she's had enough. A lot of people have had enough. And they blame the city, which is planning to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to keep some encampments cleaner and safer. But it won't solve the problem. There are about a dozen tents on either side of the street at the underpass near Nevis's home. It's dark and hard to see who might be home or willing to talk. A man named Aki is sitting on a twin mattress reading a newspaper. He's tentless, and he likes it that way. You got these tents, so you don't know what's going on, who in there. And I know that's kind of scary to people. It's even scary to me. That's why I don't do tents. <laughs> Aki says he knows there are some people who don't want the encampment nearby, like one woman who lives down the street who had her house broken into. What makes it so bad, I think, is one, it wasn't just one occasion. So I kind of understand her um, predicament, you know. But like I told her, you can't take it out on the people in this area because it wasn't nobody from this area. I can honestly say that. That doesn't do much to ease tension for other residents like Nevis, whose trust is worn thin. She doesn't walk through the underpass anymore. She doesn't feel safe. But Aki sees a different picture. To him, this neighborhood encampment is quieter and safer than other places he could stay. Well, first of all, there's not that much traffic. You know, um, the people here are not, I, how can I say it, um, unstable. But this encampment also needs more help. Some tents still take up the whole sidewalk, and there's trash that piles up nearby. We try to keep it clean, but we don't have any disposal. They had one guy that used to bring us bags, and we called the number on the bag. They had a number on the bag, and we called it, 
and it's supposed to pick it up. I had four bags sitting out there for about two weeks. They didn't come get them. City officials recently decided to give some encampments garbage pickup. They'll also provide toilets and wash stations, but only for a handful of encampments. The city has also started closing some encampments. Key is worried about this one. This is one of the safest, one of the most quietest and peacefulest encampments around. And this one should not be shut down. When I go back a few weeks later to visit a key, the tents are all gone. The sidewalks are empty. The city had shut the encampment down, cleared it out. The city shut down two others as well. When I'd last spoken to a key, he said if the city decides to shut down encampments like this one, there needs to be a place where people can go. But that is the biggest problem in cities like Oakland, where thousands of people need housing that doesn't exist. For the California Report, I'm Devin Kadiyama in Oakland. Homeless encampments are just one flashpoint in a rapidly changing Oakland. A lack of affordable housing, an influx of more affluent residents, rising rents are affecting relations between neighbors there in lots of ways. That's the theme from The North Pole, a new comedy web series that tackles gentrification in Oakland by comparing it to climate change. See, for longtime inhabitants, North Oakland is known as the North Pole. And here, we have the region's most majestic creature, its native species, the polar bear. She's beautiful. Yes. Yes, she is. The polar bear once reigned over the area living off the land in Mac Dre mixtapes. But now, it's only a few of them, a few of us left. Three best friends, born and raised in North Oakland, known to some locals as the North Pole, are among the endangered species in a rapidly gentrifying city, with its fancy coffee, artisanal donuts, and techies buying up houses that once belonged to working-class folks. The show, which premieres online next week, is written and produced by comedian and writer Josh Healy. Hi there, Josh. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So this is a hilariously funny but also deadly serious web series about the Bay Area's housing crisis. What gave you the idea to compare people of color getting pushed out of Oakland to polar bears on shrinking glaciers? The title is not a metaphor that we made up. Uh, This is a real nickname for the neighborhood of North Oakland. And the director of the show, Ivani Turiaga, uh, and our associate producer, Dania Cabello, are both from North Oakland. And I'm not from here originally. I'm from Washington, D.C., another uh, gentrifying city on the other side of the country. For me, that metaphor, that nickname just felt so real. Um, To be in a city like Oakland or cities across the state of California, really, where it feels like the local climate is changing. And the native species, the native communities are getting pushed out almost to the point of extinction. For me, it felt like a way to talk about these issues in a new way, in a different way that was true to folks here, but also could be be relatable beyond the neighborhood, beyond Oakland, 
um, across the state. The show centers around three friends who are at the center of the series. You've got Nina. She's a teacher at a charter school. You've got Marcus, who's an aspiring designer, and then their friend Benny. They all grew up together um, in North Oakland. And as you say, now they're watching their city, their neighborhood change all around them. Did the characters come first or did the story come first? We knew that we wanted to center the story on people who had deep roots um, in the neighborhood. And really, we wanted to do something that showed uh, the multiracial nature of of Oakland, of the Bay Area, and uh, black and brown folks especially. A lot of these stories are based on real stories. The show is really centered on this relationship of Nina and Marcus, and they're the roommates who are approaching local gentrification and global climate change, these kind of twin threats in different ways. You've done a lot of work taking these issues of environmental justice and climate change and translating them into comedy, which I can imagine is tricky. Um, And in the North Pole, you've got this tech company called Gringos, Gringos, uh, which is basically designing fake trees. I mean, the idea is that they would offset carbon emissions, but they would also have surveillance cameras. So these are the newest prototypes. You can see we're modifying their genes to make them look like oaks for Oakland. Subtle. And if all goes according to plan, pretty soon there's going to be millions of these bad boys improving air quality and reducing climate pollution in underserved communities all over the country. I hate the phrase underserved. No, we've been served plenty, okay? A big helping of housing discrimination, a double scoop of predatory lending, school casserole. Sorry, the metaphor kind of got away from me there. You know, I love Al Gore. I mean, he's cool. Uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, that's my dude. I watch his show on Netflix because I'm a nerdy guy like that. But we can't, you know, the PowerPoint presentations and facts and figures is not enough to reach people. And so for us, we want to do something that addressed the seriousness but also brought the humor, the joy, the comedy. Um, It's the way to introduce complex issues. It's the way to acknowledge that even when we're thinking and talking about these serious things, we also like have the little joys in our life and the little things that make us smile and that if we don't acknowledge those things, then we're losing the humanity that we're trying to fight for in the first place. So you produce this show in conjunction with a nonprofit that uses the arts to raise awareness around climate change. It was funded through a Kickstarter campaign, not through a big studio like Amazon or Netflix. What was your pitch to people who contributed? For me, it's this idea that if we're going to change the politics, if we're going to change the policies around these issues, we have to change the story. We have to tell our own stories. We have to rethink and reimagine who are the heroes, who are the villains. People want real media, but they also want stories that aren't reflected in the mainstream media. And you don't have shows, very many shows, based in the Bay Area centered on people of color, on young people who are trying to navigate these serious issues in a creative, fun way. And it helps that we we brought in a lot of our, our friends and homies in the artistic and activist community. So folks like comedian W. Kamau Bell, like rappers Mr. Fab and Boots Riley, and of course, uh, you know, the one of my great heroes, Shiro's, uh, Erica Huggins, one of the former leaders of Black Panther Party. You know, back in my day, we didn't solve all the problems, but we had a plan. You listening to this? Ten points that you know very well, 
that is still relevant today. But, but nothing. You on fire, Grandma. You spend all this energy arguing about police mm-hmm. and pollution and all the other problems on this planet. Yep, yep. But what alternative are you offering the people? Uh-huh. After people watch this, what do you think it's going to empower them to do or what do you hope it empowers them to do? Individually watching a web series, that's not going to do nothing. We know that. But joining with other folks, there's possibility there. Josh Healy is the writer and producer of The North Pole. The web series goes live on September 12th. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. Some call him the John Coltrane of Chicano art, Mexican-born painter and muralist Carlos Almaraz. Like Coltrane, his life was cut short before he was able to reach his full potential. He died when he was 48. Now the L.A. County Museum of Art is showcasing the first comprehensive retrospective of his work in decades. But as the California Report's L.A. Bureau Chief Stephen Cuevas tells us, Almaraz's story begins worlds away from the galleries of major museums in the streets of L.A.'s barrios. There's a 16 by 26 foot mural here in the Boyle Heights section of Los Angeles at the Ramona Housing Projects. It was painted by Carlos Almaraz and Judith Hernandez in 1976. It's called Las Mujeres de Aslan, the Mothers of Aslan. The artists include images of the Virgin Mary, women farm workers, and Las Adelitas, female soldiers of the Mexican Revolution. It's among the murals that Almaraz created as a founding member of Los Four, a Chicano artist collective. It formed in the early 1970s to create art for the people, for la lucha, the struggle. They had some pretty grandiose ideas with Chicano art at the center. Actor, filmmaker, and comedian Richard Montoya is wrapping up a documentary of the artist called Carlos in Wonderland. These were big personalities to maintain and keep together in a kind of a healthy, sometimes unhealthy competition. Another documentary from 1974 by filmmaker James Tartan depicts the tension within the Loss 4 collective. Almaraz wanted to take his art further, reach a larger audience, and he wanted more control. Almaraz speaks first. But you guys don't want to be hassled with control. That's yeah. what it really is. Sure. Really? I'm not hassled with control. The point no, is, I've for 25% mm-hmm. for 50%, some control. Of what? Of money. Of, of, every, of, of everything. everything. Carlos kind of takes off as an individual artist. There's a need for him to pull away from movement, identity politics, into the studio for much more personal and private work. Work that reflected more universal, if very personal, themes. His own bisexuality, the metaphysical, Mexican mythology. But the L.A. neighborhoods he knew and loved best, Boyle Heights, Echo Park, East L.A., they were never too far away. And you can catch glimpses throughout the L.A. County Museum of Art exhibit, Playing with Fire, paintings by Carlos Almaraz. Go into the first two main galleries of this exhibition, you'll see grand cityscapes featuring naked people cavorting in the streets, freeways zooming and zigzagging all over the place, and the buildings themselves, the skyscrapers, are wagging like puppy dog tails. It's visually right in your face. Howard Fox is the curator of the LACMA exhibit. He and Richard Montoya walked me through playing with fire on a recent weekday. Fiery would be an apt description of Almaraz's use of light and color. 
skies can take on the glow of a smoldering Southern California wildfire. It's got these Disney colors in it, too. Mm-hmm. So he's drinking in California, the open sky, the, the things he couldn't see in Mexico City as a kid. But he comes to L.A., and my God, there's these things called freeways that are over the barrios, and there's these skies and these colors. Amaraz's freeway car crash paintings are among his most famous, lonely arcing overpasses rising over L.A. neighborhoods. But unlike actual L.A. freeways, these are empty, except for one or two crashed cars. Engines blown in spectacular fireballs, tires and chunks of metal cascading across the canvas. The paint is laid on thick, like cake frosting. We respond to the imagery almost viscerally, like you would if you saw an actual car crash. You can't not look at it. Howard Fox. But with the thick, buttery impasto that he paints these desperate images with, it's almost as if you want to go up and lick the painting. Don't do that, please. But, <laughs> but it tempts you to lick it or touch it. Painting is an illusion. It's a window to something that may or may not be real. Here's Amaraz in an old videotaped interview recorded shortly before his death from complications related to AIDS in 1989. It's there, and it's as real as, as anything else at the time that you're viewing it. I think then I sense a certain power in that illusion. Almaraz continued to paint up until his death. Howard Fox says it was among his most prolific periods. These days, many art critics, including Fox, rank Almaraz among the finest California painters of the 20th century, alongside David Hockney, Ed Ruscha, and Wayne Thiebaud. And yet there's been no major retrospective of his work in more than 30 years. Why did it take so long? That's a very good question, and I'm afraid that uh, any of the answers would point to curatorial neglect. Richard? It's not just that we're in an Oscar-so-white town. The battle now moves into the large museums. Carlos is kind of shoving open a door for us. And now that we're in, there may be no looking back. Playing with Fire, paintings by Carlos Almaraz, is on view at the L.A. County Museum of Arts until December. If you can't make it, you can always try and track down some of the surviving street murals he created in Boyle Heights or South L.A., For the California Report, I'm Stephen Cuevas in Los Angeles. California is home to more DACA recipients than any other state, and they're still absorbing news this week that President Trump plans to phase out the program that's given them temporary protection from deportation. We wanted to check back in with a dreamer we introduced you to last year when she became the first undocumented Ph.D. to graduate from California's newest university, UC Merced. So this is a heart that is going to be right now perfused with the dye that goes into the membrane so that we can look at the electrical signaling going on. I visited Yuriana Aguilar in her lab where she was doing groundbreaking cardiovascular research, figuring out how to prevent heart attacks. She's the daughter of farm workers in Fresno, worked her way through school picking watermelons, cleaning hotels. She says without DACA, she couldn't have pursued a career in science. Her work permit expires in October 2018. It's really hard um, to, to have that instability and security. I wanted to, to buy my first home. There's no way I'm doing that now until I know for sure what's happening, what's going on. She's just going to wait it out, she says, until she can get another work permit. If it comes to it, you know, you get tired. Sometimes you just get tired of being rejected. It's like, it's like a love-hate relationship. Yes, contribute. No, we don't like you. <laughs> yes, we love you. No. No, go back to your country. (laughs) 
So it, it hurts. It hurts to be rejected. Even harder than hearing the news about DACA this week, she says, was telling her parents about it. They have four kids covered by the program. A pilot, a mortician, a medical interpreter, and Yudiana, the heart researcher. Now she's putting her dream of building a world-class cardiac research institute in the San Joaquin Valley on hold. This is the country that I know. This is the country that formed me as a scientist and where I want to form future scientists, future doctors. Instead of planning, instead of getting prepared, there's a bunch of what-ifs going through my mind. She says she's holding out hope Congress will weigh the evidence that dreamers like her are making significant contributions, generating jobs. Look at us. Look at our fruits for the past five years. Really evaluate us and see if we pass. I think we have passed whatever test Congress had for the past five years. I, I honestly think we have passed that test. Immigration lawyers are now scrambling to help young dreamers navigate these changes. Next, we'll hear from an immigration lawyer in San Diego. She's dispensing advice, but she's also trying to figure out her own future. That's because she's a DACA recipient herself. Her name is Dulce Garcia. My mother brought us about 28 years ago, my two brothers and myself. We took the train for three days, and then we arrived in Tijuana. Um, And right before crossing, I remember getting robbed at the border. I was about six years old. Someone holding a gun on my older brother. That was my last memory of my home country. Growing up was tough. Um, We had to deal with homelessness. Um, We wouldn't go out much. We were scared of getting caught. I didn't visit places outside from um, school trips. We definitely lacked health care. So my parents were filing taxes and contributing to the system, working, um, but we weren't able to benefit from from anything, really, from any uh, public assistance. So it was a struggle. I remember being scared all the time. Even local police officers, we would stay away as much as possible. After I had already received a couple of acceptances to different universities, I went to my counselor asking for help to help me decide what university to go to. And my counselor really bluntly said to me, "Um, you're not even going to be able to enroll in community college. Forget about going to an university. And um, that really um, spiked something (laughs) in me. Um, I stormed out of there sad and frustrated and Yeah, I would do whatever it took to enroll. My whole education has been paid off with my own work, doing all kinds of jobs. I was fortunate enough in high school to do an internship, and then I was hired as a paralegal, and that paid for a lot of the bills, but I I would take on side jobs. I would do anything from working in a flower shop, serving tables, parking cars, tutoring, anything that would give me money to buy my next book. When President Obama announced DACA, 
I was so happy. I cried. I called everyone that I could think of. Um, but at the same time, I understood that it wasn't a path to citizenship. So I was abandoned to the problem. But initially, I felt like it wasn't enough. But whatever we had accomplished uh, as a group at that point, it was uh, incredible. Working as an immigration lawyer and uh, being undocumented at the same time, I think it, it reassures my clients a little bit more to know that I understand the situation based on my experience. I'm not going anywhere. I was here before DACA and I'm going to be here after DACA. We've been contributing to the system for many years. There's a lot of groups, uh, local immigration attorneys and so many organizations that are taking a stand and our local uh, government is taking a stand and saying uh, they're going to support us. It gives me courage to step out and say, yes, I wasn't able to speak out before, but now that I'm out of the shadows, I'm not going to, I'm not returning back to that. San Diego immigration attorney Dulce Garcia. She was interviewed by Marisa Cabrera at KPBS. And that's the California Report Magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Katie McMurrin's behind the board this week, and we had additional engineering from Seal Muller. Special thanks to Jonathan Shiflett and Oscar Garza at KPCC's The Frame. Bianca Taylor is our intern. The California Report's senior producer is Victoria Malion. Our editorial team includes Julia McAvoy, Alex Helmick, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks. Cloud-ready firewalls engineered for today's next-generation business networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash cloud-ready. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. 
special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.